open up in your worship folders or into your pew Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're in verses 1 through 14. That's Colossians 1, 1 through 14. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which, was, which came to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. U.S. agent in gorilla suit stops monkey business. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a headline that makes me want to read an article. Uh, Showed up in the 90s from where else but uh, Miami, Florida, South Florida, my hometown. It seems like all the weird stuff in the U.S. happens there. Um, It's a story of uh, a Mexican official that decided he wanted to illegally buy a gorilla and tried to do so from a Miami zookeeper. Well, federal agents got wind of this plot, and so they set up a little sting of their own. They got a very real gorilla cage with very real gorilla smells and put inside a very real federal agent dressed in a not-so-real gorilla suit. The night of the deal came, and the Mexican official peered inside, heard some grunting, saw something that looked a bit like a gorilla, and decided this must be the real deal, forked over the money. And at that moment, he had two surprises waiting for him. The first was a swarm of federal agents that came out to arrest him. Already a bad night. But the second is even more cruel, because at simultaneously, that very moment, the cage sprung open. And the federal agent, clad in gorilla suit, sprung out towards the Mexican official, unbeknownst to him that it's not the real thing. I'll give you a quote from someone who was there at the moment. We kept telling him, we're police, we're police. But even after the agent took the hood off, he couldn't believe a gorilla wasn't coming after him. (laughs) Another guy that was there said, it was like a movie. I'm really surprised anyone could be that gullible. But they fell for it. I guess it goes to show money doesn't equate with intelligence. (laughs) 
Now, that's a, a funny example of someone who got fooled. But if we're honest, none of us want to be known as somebody that's gullible. I mean, think of all the steps we take to, be, to avoid being fooled. Before you buy a big ticket item, chances are you're going to do a little comparison shopping. Before you agree to marry someone, chances are you get to know them through dating or courtship. If you're an employer, before you hire an employee, you want to check references. You want to maybe even do a background check. It's pretty hard to live well in this modern age without a certain level of healthy skepticism. I think we all get that. None of us want to be a fool. But yet if we're honest, we could also realize this is a double-edged sword. That if you doubt the wrong things, if you doubt things unrightfully, you can actually do great harm to yourself. Imagine if you wrongly questioned the fidelity of your spouse. That's going to do some damage to your relationship. What if you repeatedly and unhealthily questioned your own ability to do your job? Chances are, over time, your performance is going to suffer. What about your faith? Is it possible that unfounded doubt could over time discourage you? Maybe start thinking, having thoughts like, do I really have a relationship with God? Is this all there is? Am I missing out on something? Is there some practice or teaching or guru I need to listen to in order to have authentic spirituality? I think those of us who have been Christians for any length of time know that those sorts of thoughts, even if we don't entertain them for long, are just a reality of living in this world. So where do we go for encouragement when we ourselves find discouragement in our hearts? Well, the letter to the Colossians is written to people like us. It was written to a young, discouraged church about 2,000 years ago. Uh, It's more of a letter than a book. It's written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he actually never met. Uh, On a day like Father's Day, it's worth noting that Paul is the spiritual grandpappy to this church. Uh, Through a a guy named Epaphras, Paul went to a place called Ephesus and preached the gospel. And a guy who wasn't from Ephesus but happened to be there named Epaphras heard that gospel, got converted, and then went back to his hometown, a place called Colossae about what we call Western Turkey today. Epaphras went back and did what Christians have been doing for generations. He told anyone that would listen about Jesus and the gospel. And by God's grace, some of them did listen and became converted. Now all this happens with the Apostle Paul being blissfully aware, unaware of what, what's occurred out in Colossae. That is, until one day, Epaphras came across a situation he didn't know how to handle. He was the de facto pastor of this fledgling church, and up sprang some false teachers. We don't know exactly what they were saying, but we can sketch the outlines of it. It was something like, it's all well and good that you say you believe in Jesus. It's all well and good that you say you're a Christian and that you believe this gospel that Epaphras has preached to you. But really, if you want to be really spiritual... Well, you need some add-ons. Maybe you need a particular form of prayer. Maybe you need uh, uh, certain things to avoid, certain foods or certain places you don't go. Maybe you need to start observing certain special spiritual holidays. 
Whatever you have with, uh, in Jesus right now, that's all well and good. But if you want to break through, you've got to do more. Now, Epaphras didn't quite know how to handle it, so he did the sensible thing. He went looking for Paul. Probably found him somewhere in Rome. And he simultaneously both informs him of the existence of the Colossian church, as well as the plight that they are in. So the Apostle Paul writes this letter. That's the occasion. It's an apostle who's never met them, this spiritual grandchildren of his, but who's seeking to encourage a young, discouraged church. Now, the book itself has a pretty simple main message to it. If you have your Bible, flip to chapter 2 and verse 6. Verses 6 and 7, I think, are the thesis statement of the book. It's this. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The purpose of the book is to remind these Christians that they don't need anything outside of the gospel of Jesus. For true spiritual life with God, for for true authentic spirituality, all they need is just Jesus. Now the book itself is pretty simple in its structure. Uh, Chapter 1 all the way through 2-5 makes up the introduction. There Paul introduces himself. Again, this is a church that doesn't know him. Uh, He lets the Colossians know who he thinks they are, as well as introducing them to the grandeur of who Jesus is. Then he connects the dots between all those different parties and how they're related. Then in chapter 2, 6 through the end of the chapter, he really destroys this false teaching. He shows how these philosophies and teachings that supposedly are going to give you authentic spirituality actually are empty. They can't make good on what they promise. But Jesus, on the other hand, gives you everything you need for a living faith. Then chapters 3 and 4 are dealing with practical matters. How is it you actually live as a Christian in this world? This morning we're going to focus on 1 through 14, and it's really focusing on answering the question, how is it you can be encouraged that you have a living faith? We're going to move through it in three sections. The first in 1 through 2, we're going to see you can be encouraged by knowing the source of a living faith. Then in 3 through 8, we'll see that you can be encouraged by knowing what a living faith looks like. And finally, in 9 through 14, after two encouragements, we will have a challenge. We'll be challenged to know that a living faith must grow. First, let's look at verses 1 and 2 at where does a living faith come from? Now, I uh, don't claim to be an expert in antiquities or in ancient artifacts. I know just enough to know I probably shouldn't be buying any. Um, I went to Israel on a, a stamp trip one point, and when you travel there, they warn you that you should be very careful about buying things that are claiming to be ancient, uh, things that are supposed to be artifacts and the like. Uh, one, it might be that you buy something that you can't even get out of the country. Maybe it's authentic, but it's illegal for you to take it home. That wouldn't be good. But secondly, it's very difficult to know whether something is real or not. So at one of the sites, there was someone there peddling these coins and pottery and things. And and he knew that we would be slightly hesitant to buy them. So in order to try and get us to buy these artifacts, he provided documentation. Certificates of authentication. They said, this is the real deal. This is where it was found. This is where it came from. This is who dug it up. You can have confidence. It is genuine. 
In verses 1 through 2, apostle, the Apostle Paul provides the Colossians with his certificate of authentication. He says, we want to know how you can believe that you have a living faith. Well, remember where it comes from. He introduces himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now, remember, they have never met the apostle Paul. And it's interesting that he starts with this title of apostle. Other letters of his, he doesn't always include that title of apostle, but sometimes he does. So why would he do it here? Well, that word apostle means a sent one, an emissary. Someone who you give authority to, to go out on your behalf. They've never met Paul, but they've heard the message through Epaphras that Paul gave them. And so Paul wants them to know the source of it. He says, you can trace all the way back. This goes back to Jesus himself. The way Paul became an apostle is outlined for us in Acts chapter 9. He wasn't someone who just one day sat up and decided, oh, I'm going to go preach the gospel. He was actually out trying to persecute people who believed the gospel. But the risen Lord Jesus appeared to him and said, you are going to be my messenger. It was by the very will of God. It's really important for the Colossians to understand that the gospel they received actually was an extension of Jesus' own teaching about himself. It was God's word to them because God had commissioned the Apostle Paul to be the missionary, the Apostle, to the Gentiles. What's also interesting is Paul appears to show that he can extend that authority to anyone else who carries this message. If you let your eye go down to uh, verses 7 through 8, there he commends Epaphras. So Epaphras was the one who preached to them, and he says, You learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. In other words, that certificate of authentication that says this is the real message because it comes from the real source, it actually goes all the way back to Jesus it applies to their local pastor, to Epaphras. Now you may be wondering, why should I listen to some guy in a suit standing up, preaching 2,000 years about what the Apostle Paul's message was? Well, let me just suggest to you that this principle, that the authority is carried with the message of the gospel itself and the word of God, that the credential of authentication that Paul here claims for himself gets passed on to any faithful preacher of the gospel is the reason why we should listen to preaching today. I don't stand before you as someone that has some special insight. I've never had a a vision of God. I'm not particularly clever. Uh, I don't pretend that I, I should have some sort of intrinsic authority to myself. The only reason you should listen to me or anyone who preaches like me is if we are preaching the true gospel that Paul preached. And let me just give you an encouragement. You're not left without a way of verifying this. Apostle Paul may be long dead, but his words live on because of the scriptures that the apostles wrote down. You don't have to take my word for it. You can go and check for yourself. If someone invited you to church today and you don't consider yourself a Christian, you might be asking, how can I know if this is really what God has said to me? Let me just encourage you, take the time to actually read the Bible yourself. 
Ask yourself, does this sound like what God is saying? Then when you hear a preacher like me preach, you can ask yourself, is he trying to pull the wool over my eyes? Is he trying to make me the fool? Or is he simply preaching the gospel of Jesus that the apostles preached 2,000 years ago? Paul wants the Colossians to know that he is the real deal. He also wants them to know that they are the real deal. He calls them saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And that brings us to our second encouragement. See, if you want to be encouraged, it's really important to know where your living faith comes from. But it's equally as important for it to pass the eye test. How can you know what a living faith looks like? How did Paul determine that they were faithful brothers and saints in Colossae? Well, that's what our second section, verses 3 through 8, shows us. It shows us what a living faith looks like. I grew up in Florida, and the, the South Florida part I mentioned down by Fort Lauderdale, Miami. And if, if you're not aware, the climate is quite different there. Um, and uh, that different climate means you get different wildlife. And so one of the things you get a lot of uh, is you get more snakes. Um, some of you probably like snakes. Many of you probably don't. Um, but as a kid in Florida, it was not unusual for you to be taught how to tell the difference between different types of snakes. There was one in particular, a coral snake, that was very venomous, not the largest snake in the world. Uh, it would be very easy to step on it or, or not be careful and get bit by one. So they would teach children a, like a nursery rhyme to be able to tell the difference between a coral snake and other snakes that look similar. It went something like this. Red on black is a friend of Jack. In other words, if there's red and there's black on the coloring of the snake together, it's a safe snake to be around. But red on yellow, well, that's a dead fellow. <laughs> it's important to be able to pass the eye test. How do you know what the real thing looks like? Well, three through eight, Paul shows us. He shows us through way of a prayer of his. He lets us into his prayer closet. And in doing so, he tells us what it is about the Colossians that has had him with one attitude in his heart over and over again. An attitude of gratitude. He says in verse 3, we, th- we always thank God. That's a continual thinking of God. When we pray for you, why? Here it is in verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. He actually goes on to list three different virtues that he sees and lets him say that is a living true faith. The first is that faith in Christ Jesus in verse 4. Second is in the second half of 4. It's love for all the saints. And the third is hope. Hope laid up for you heaven in verse 5. Let's look at each of them briefly here. He says that he hears of their faith in Christ Jesus. Now, as soon as we hear the word faith today, we already have some baggage. Uh, We think of faith as uh, an inward belief or, or something we hold so closely to ourselves that it's not something that anyone could ever question. I had one guy that told me that his faith came from a movie he watched. And when I started asking questions on it, eventually he just said, listen, it's my faith. Stop asking me questions about it. It's my own. A lot of times we speak of faith as this inward conviction of something that has no way of actually being verified. But that's not the way faith is often used in the Bible, and certainly not the way Paul is using it here. 
he clarifies what this faith is by saying it's a faith in Christ Jesus. This sort of faith is much closer to the word we would use today of trust. Do you actually trust Jesus to save you from your sins? To turn away the wrath of God from you? Do you actually trust Jesus to be able to lead your life as a good Lord? It's not just a personal feeling. It, It is a disposition towards a person. Paul hears of a faith in Christ Jesus and knows that's a sign of a true living faith. Second is this concept of love. Once again, we have to realize that love, we immediately think of sentimental notions, emotions, and romanticism. And and while those things are good, the love here is limited by the phrases connected to love for all the saints. This is how Christians love one another. Maybe you're in a small group and you have people in that group that you have learned to love over time who, frankly, you wouldn't otherwise associate with. Maybe they're from a different generation. Maybe they're from a different ethnicity. Maybe they're from a different socioeconomic strata. And yet there is a bond between you because you're Christians. Jesus said that his followers would be known because of their love for one another. The Apostle Paul hears the Colossians love other Christians and says, that's a sign of a true living faith. Third is hope. Hope is not just a, a, prom, a, a, a wish. It's not just something we really hope will be true in the sense that we really wish it would be true. Hope is instead looking forward to the promises God has given us with confidence saying, I can wait for him to fulfill them because I know the character of the one who made the promises. The hope here is said to be in heaven, stored up in heaven for them. It's that part of our hearts as a Christian that allows you to look beyond this world, to know that this isn't everything, that there's something worth more than temporary safety and pleasure There's an inheritance waiting for us in heaven that will make it all worthwhile. There is really a heaven to be gained and a hell to be avoided. Paul hears that there's faith, love, and hope present amongst the Colossians and says this must be a living faith. He sums up all these things and tells us how this all comes about. And he tells us the reason why he thanks God for these things among them by saying this is fruit of the gospel. In other words, this is something God did through the faithful preaching of the gospel among them. I wonder if any of you here this morning come here spiritually discouraged. You're very aware of failures in your walk with the Lord. You haven't read the scriptures the way you should. You're not as mature as you should be as a believer. Maybe you've had a more spectacular sin. Something other people have found out about that's brought you, and by extension, the Lord Jesus, great shame. This morning, I would ask you, would you take some time and stop focusing on the feelings of discouragement and discontentment, would would you instead focus on whether or not a living faith is present? Ask yourself, do I really trust Jesus? Push comes to shove. Even after I've failed, do I trust that he's going to deal with my sin? Do I trust his ways better than my own? 
Ask yourself, is there any love for other believers in your life? Not perfectly. But are there any people in your life that you could say, I would honestly not even be friends with them if not for the fact that we were both believers in Jesus? Is there any hope? Do you ever find yourself caught up thinking about heaven? Thinking about what it'll be like to see Jesus face to face. Does that bring any measure of peace to your heart? Brothers and sisters, if that's the case, if you see any of these things among you, let me suggest that you should take great encouragement, much as Paul wanted the Colossians to take encouragement. Because this is evidence that the gospel that was preached to you has taken root and is bearing fruit. We are to be encouraged not because we are perfect people, but because there is a living faith among us. Two encouragements. First, the source of a living faith. Second, what a living faith looks like. Now Paul turns his attention to the challenge, how a living faith grows. We see that in verses 9 through 14. I love the baptisms we had this morning. Uh, what a blessing children are among us. Uh, our daughter's almost three years old. And uh, one of the things she enjoys most is when she gets to go back to Florida and hang out with her cousin, who's just a few months older than her. Um, and it's interesting. It's one of those things where we see her regularly enough and we feel like we really know her. But we also have big enough gaps between when we see her that it's very noticeable the changes that happen. Um, and I've noticed one trend. She keeps on getting taller. <laughs> and uh, a very wise man, my brother once told me, turns out if you keep feeding them, they keep on growing. <laughs> you know, one of the signs of vitality of life is that something grows. Now, Paul lets us in on his prayer life one more time, but this time he's not telling us of what's caused his heart to sing in gratitude. Now he's telling us what drives him to his knees to plead for the Colossians. What is it the Apostle Paul feels the urge that he absolutely must plead with God on their behalf over? Well, it's that he knows that their faith needs to grow. He says that in in two ways. The first you'll find in verse 9. That they need to grow in the knowledge of his will. And the second, you'll see in verse 10, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let's look at what it means for them to have a knowledge of his will in verse 9. It's instructive to know that when Paul turns his attention to the knowledge of God the Colossians need, he does so in a way that makes clear that God himself is the one that needs to do the filling. This is probably a contrast to what the Colossians were hearing from these false teachers. There is a sort of knowledge of God that you need that you can't produce in yourself. Now, he says it's a knowledge of God's will. Many of us wish we knew the will of God. Uh, Believers for generations have been asking the question how they can know the will of God. Everything from who to marry, to what school to go to, to what parking spot to park in. We really would like to know what theologians call the secret will of God. How God's ordered everything in time and history to come to pass so that we could work it out in a way advantageous to us. But God doesn't let us in on that very often. He's fully capable of doing so if he wants to. But but that's not generally his aim when he tells us he wants us to know the knowledge of his will. 
Instead, he talks to us about his revealed will. That is, what has he shown himself to be? Who is God? What's his character? What does he love? What does he hate? And by extension, what does he want from us? Paul says that he is praying, he is pleading over and over again that the Colossians would understand what it is that God wants from them. They would have knowledge of God's will. But that knowledge isn't just so that it can go sit up on a shelf somewhere like a a dusty old book that you never pull off. It's so that it will change their conduct. And that's what brings us to verse 10. That's where he says, So, that is, for this reason, as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In other words, that knowledge should change the way they live. Now that phrase, walk worthy of the Lord, is a little bit difficult. Um, The the best illustration I came uh, came across for it comes from uh, Dr. D.A. Carson. He described it as, Sort of like the relationship you would have with somebody where you respect them so much that you just can't bear the thought of letting them down. Maybe you have a mentor on Father's Day today. Maybe it's your father or grandfather. Someone who you love and you know cares for you and has done so, so much to make sure that you flourish. And you just want so badly for them to be proud of you. Not because you feel like you're earning their love, but because you love them so much. Paul says this is the type. This is the type of attitude he wants the Colossians to have about the Lord Jesus. He wants them to respect him and honor, desire to honor him so much that it changes the way they live. Lest we not be sure what that honoring of him would look like. He gives us four ways that happens in 10 through 12. I'll I'll just go through them briefly. Four descriptions of what it is to walk worthy of the Lord. The first is found in the second half of 10. It's the bearing fruit. That is, there are just to be good works present in a believer's life. Acts of charity. Acts of selflessness. Acts of faithfulness. Second is in Uh, The last part of verse 10, it's a hunger for God's word. They increase in the knowledge of God. Remember, we started there. Now, this is a fruit that's being produced of it. It's kind of like a feedback loop in the sound system. Once it gets going, it just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. You desire to know more about God, so you read God's word. And that changes the way you act. And and the satisfaction from that and the joy from it causes you to go deeper into his word, which causes you to more and more good works. A feedback cycle. Third is spiritual backbone there in verse 11. He he prays that they would be strengthened with God's very power. the, The power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. Specifically so that that power might allow them to be patient, to endure with joy. In other words, when there is a stormy cloud in your life, God's strength would allow you to know that it's actually just hiding his smile. Then the fourth is a grateful heart. Thankfulness to the Father. Now, it's instructed that Paul himself started with thankfulness about the Colossians, and he ends here with thankfulness in their own hearts, is what he's asking them to, produ- be, uh, to have produced in them, because that is the sign of someone who understands who the Lord Jesus is and wishes to honor him. 
How do you produce all those things within you? How do you drum up enough strength in order to live a life worthy of the Lord? Well, that's where Paul ends. Verses 12 through 14. The very gospel that they first heard that got this living faith rolling is the gospel that will sustain them. He reminds them of the fact that they didn't used to be those that should expect anything from God except his punishment. And yet God made them into inheritors. He brought them into his family and he promised to give them the rewards that Jesus, his beloved son, deserves. He reminds them of the fact that they didn't used to be in the kingdom of God. In fact, they were a part of the kingdom of darkness. That's where the whole world resides in rebellion against God. But God migrated them out from the sinful, broken, rebellious world and brought them into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus. He reminds them how that happened. He purchased them. He paid a heavy price for them by sending his son up to the cross to die an innocent man, bearing the punishment of rebel sinners that they rightly deserved. He reminds them that as a result, their sins are forgiven, wiped away, 100% guiltless before God because of what Jesus did on the cross. See, a living faith finds its fuel to keep going the same place a living faith originates from, the very gospel of Jesus. We must never get over the gospel. Let's never get over the gospel. As we come to our closing, we've seen already how the living faith is find encouragement from our living faith from where it comes from and how we're to find encouragement from a living faith from what it looks like. And, and then the challenge here to have a faith that grows, a living faith that's growing I want us to think about what it means for a living faith, a growing living faith to be among us as a church. Not just as individuals, but what does it mean for college church here in Wheaton? Now, if you're not aware, this church has been around for a while, over 150 years. It's not exactly like it was when it was started. It's much larger numerically. Uh, It's got different buildings. It certainly has different pastors. I have not been here under 50 years, confession. But I wonder if we use the same categories Paul used in this opening to his letter, if we would find encouragement that maybe there's a living faith among us, even as a venerable 150-year-old church. Where did a living faith spring from, from among us? Well, even if you go all the way to the beginning, there was a belief that the Bible was the word of God. And so there was a belief that the gospel of Jesus was the only way into a living faith. And that legacy has endured over 150 years of centering ministry upon the Bible. How about, is there any evidence that the living faith has been among us? Uh, Is there any faith, any love, any hope? Well, in my time here, I've seen people walk in these doors, not a Christian, and walk out as one. I know there's countless examples of people who put their trust in Jesus, not just for their salvation, but actually for how they live week in and week out. What about any love? My mind immediately goes to our STARS ministry. The genuine love that we have as a congregation 
for each other, even when our lives look completely differently for each other. A couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of taking some junior high students to Windsor Park and to go find some mutual encouragement from our college church members at Windsor Park by having junior high students go into their homes and experience hospitality and, and try to share an encouraging word. You know what? There is genuine love among us. It's not perfect, but it's an evidence of living faith. How about hope? I can't make sense of our missions program at all if we didn't have a hope laid up for us in heaven. Why would you continually send out your best and your brightest? Why would you send your resources off to the corners of the earth unless you believed that the gospel of Jesus was true and you believed there was something better than comfort? Each week I get the privilege of seeing your prayer requests that you write in. And over and over again I see this theme, this desire for you and for the people around you to go deeper into God's word. And a desire to live a life worthy of God. Brothers and sisters, this is not a perfect church. I don't think any of us would be fooled if I even tried to claim that. But it is a church where a living faith is present. And that's a reason for us to be encouraged. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a thought that the gospel that Paul preached over 2,000 years ago would be extended to us living in Wheaton, Illinois, that we could know we have the real deal of faith, the living faith, that we could find encouragement from it. Jesus, would you help us to walk in a manner worthy of you? Would you give us joy? Would you give us increased knowledge of you? Would you make our whole lives into something that pleases you? Do this among us, we pray. In your name, amen.